I'm reading my text this morning for the American Revised Version because I like the translation here a little better than I do in the King James Version. I'm beginning at the 32nd verse of the second chapter of Jeremiah, reading just about three or four verses. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How trimmest thou thy way to seek love or favor? I think love there is probably a little strong. Uh, probably the word would be better, or favor. Uh, not love in the strongest sense as we know it. Therefore, even wicked women hast thou taught thy ways. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the innocent poor. Thou didst not find them breaking in, but it is because of all these things. Yet thou said, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter into judgment with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou shalt be ashamed of Egypt also, as I wast of ashamed of Assyria. From thence also thou shalt go forth with thy hands upon thy head, for it Jehovah hath rejected those in whom thou trustest, and thou shalt not prosper with them. Now this is a text. Can a maid forget her ornament, or bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? I'd like to begin this message by saying that Jeremiah was a God-called man. Every man and woman on this earth who surrendered to God is a God-called man or a God-called woman. There isn't any such thing as a lowly task in the sight of God for surrendered people. Only a few in the history of the world have made the headlines. Most of God's people are humble people. Most of them live unnoticed and unknown and die in lonely places and are buried in lonely graves. Not many people in the religious history of the world ever stood out. Once in a while, God calls a man to make the headlines, calls a man to stand up before the masses. That doesn't happen often. Most of the servants of God in this country who are consecrated to God are living in lowly, humble, unknown places, and the world never stops to think about them. But I'd like to remind you who are listening this morning, whether over the air or here in this building, that if you are God's man, called to God's job, and have accepted that call and heeded that call, your position in the sight of God uh, is just as important in God's estimation as the position of the most noble and most noted man that ever lived in the history of the world. God does not measure you by the prominence of your position. God measures you by your fidelity to him and your faithfulness to the task which he's called you. You know, we need to emphasize that in these days. Human beings have always been more or less a hero worshiper. We fall down the feet of the big men and the big women. The older I get, the greater appreciation I have of God's humble people. 
I know many of them. When I get to heaven, I'm going to meet some of the friends I've met along the road of life. Their name never got in the paper. Nobody ever heard of them. They lived in little communities and were buried and forgotten. I walked through an old cemetery in southeast Alabama some time ago and read the inscriptions on tombstones of saints I knew when I was a boy. They never got a hundred miles from home, some of them. They lived out there in loneliness and obscurity. They knew how to pray and how to read the Bible and how to walk with God. They were faithful where God put them. Now, if you are right with God, you have a divine call. And God has for you a position already prepared and a place for you. It may be that you know you found that place. So many people say to me, how can I know what God wants me to do? How can I know God's position and place for me? Well, I'll tell you, if you don't know, the best way to find out is to do the job at hand now for God. The best preparation that you can make for tomorrow is to do God's job today. You know what you ought to do today. You ought to pray. You ought to read your Bible. You ought to trust God. You ought to be a witness. You ought to be faithful where you are. And the best preparation you can make for all the tomorrows is a job well done today. You'll find your place. God never let any man or woman lose his or her way through this world who had a supreme desire to do the will of God. A double-minded man's unstable. But a man who has a mind for God and a will for God and a supreme desire to do the will of God always finds his place in the world in which he lives. And when you get over yonder on the other side, you're going to find out that every surrendered Christian who ever lived is where God put them. God made most women to be mothers. Most of them. Not always, but most of them. To have families, bring up children, dress babies, teach them about God, be keepers at home. And God never called anybody to do any job without giving him not only a commission, but instructions on how to do it. Now, God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to his people. And God told him what to do and what to say. If God called you to be a pastor, God told you what to do. He said, feed the sheep. He didn't say to beat them and club them. He didn't even tell you to be an executive. He said, feed the sheep. And yet there are hundreds and thousands of pulpits in America today where the sheep will go away hungry because the pastor didn't listen to the divine injunction. God called some women to be wise, and he told them what to do as Christian wives, how to live. He called men to be husbands, some of them, and told them how to be husbands. To love their wives as Christ loved the church and died for the church. He called all of us to be sons and daughters because we were born to this world. God never let a Christian girl or a Christian boy live in the dark and want to know what to do. God tells you what to do. Uh, God tells kings on thrones 
and presidents and White Houses what to do. There isn't any task that God ever called anybody in this world to do without giving God giving instruction to do it. Now, God said, Jeremiah, I want you to be a prophet to my people, my people. You know, sometimes uh, we don't realize that in the Old Testament days, uh, when the original orders seemed to be for the priest and the ordinary processes to go ahead, when a prophet came in Israel, it was a sign that God had a controversy with his people. And the prophet always took God's side in the controversy. And the prophet was not usually popular, and he was popular. He wasn't popular usually with the priests and the leaders and the ecclesiastical bosses. But he was popular with the hungry masses that wanted bread and, and spiritual food and help and weren't getting it from the priests and the ordinary process. Sometimes America, God calls some men in America to be revivalists, to stir up crowds when there's a deadness in the country. And now as a boy, God raised up down here in the south a man named Sam Jones to shake out of our religion at that day and time a dead formality, though modernism had not yet encroached upon our churches. God raised him up and sent him out, and he was criticized, and yet the crowds came. God sometimes called men to be revivalists and sometimes to be evangelists. An evangelist revivalists is not exactly the same thing. A revivalist is more of the Old Testament prophet in this age. An evangelist is a man that specially adapted to the job of winning people to Christ. But winning people to Christ is everybody's business. That's the job of every man, woman, and child on this earth that knows Jesus Christ. That's all of our jobs. We can't excuse ourselves from soul winning, and yet uh, God raises up men sometimes in a special way, and especially qualifies them and equips them to be evangelists, not prophets, other men revivalists. I could name some of the men in my mind now who have lived in the past that were more revivalists than they were evangelists. I can name some today who are more evangelists than they were revivalists or prophets. Blessed is a man that finds out what God wants him to do and does it. I've seen in my lifetime as a minister of the gospel for 52 years, I've seen men come and go. I've seen men on whom the blessing of God seemed to rest in a strange way, and sometimes ambition gets hold of them. And ambition drives them into places that God never sent them, into fields of service and into an approach to a job to which God never called them. Now God said to Jeremiah, you are my prophet. And Jeremiah the humble man said, I'm a child. This is too big for me. You've got the wrong number, God. Not me. You made a mistake. Oh, that's the man that God's looking for. The man that feels sufficient in himself is never God's man for big things. The man for big things is a man that knows his limitations. He said, I'm just a child. And God said, don't say that, Jeremiah. Don't say that. Just remember that I'll be with you. I'll put the words in my mouth, your mouth. Don't you be afraid of them. Don't worry about their faces. Never mind how pious they look or how wise they talk. 
Never mind how many diplomas hang on their walls or how many Ph.D. hoods they have about their collars. Never mind. I'll be a fence city to you. I'll protect you. I'll stand between you and the foes. You're going to have them. If you ever think you can be God's man in this world and not produce friction, you don't know God and you don't know the world. God one time sent his son from heaven's noonday to earth's midnight. And all the courts that tried him and all the people that turned him on him, the microscopic scrutiny that was turned upon him in his day, said he's faultless. And yet the last time the wicked world ever saw him, he is out yonder mangled and bloody and dead on a cross with men gambling at the foot of that cross for his robe that somebody had given. What a fool a man is that figures he can be God's man and the world's man. It can't be done. It never has been done. But I tell you this day, men and women and boys and girls and young preachers especially, you listen to me. God said to Jeremiah, I'll fence you about, and all the guns and ecclesiastics may put on the walls, and all the animosity of my people who have backslidden and sinned, nothing can stop you till your job's done. I'll protect you. You be true to me and faithful to me and do the job I, to which I assign you, and I'd be more interested in the job than you are, and I won't let them hurt you till you do the job. No surrendered, consecrated, spirit-led man of God was ever killed until his job was done. Men sometimes step out of the will of God and death overtakes them. And I think sometimes death is a penalty that God sends upon some of his children that step out of his will. I've known in my lifetime evangelists and preachers, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known that started out under God's power in a marvelous way, and one day he was sidestepped from the purpose of God, and I watched him when he fell in disgrace and dishonor, died a premature death. I think that pastor's scripture, every branch in me brings not fruit, he take the way, that that's exactly what he means. You know, I'd be afraid to get out of the will of God. I never shall forget when I was a little struggling country preacher. I was converted to Methodist altar down southeast Alabama, country church. Next July, in the very shadow of that church, one of the converts of my ministry, when I was 15 years old, a great Baptist preacher, was going to put a tent right out there, seating thousands of people in Gaduck Revival. I went by that church some time ago. I was converted and just began to try to witness and went to preach. First thing I know, the Southern Methodist Church had me licensed to preach. Fathers of Methodist, mother good old country Baptist, baptized I was in a country creek down there in southeast Alabama. I got into the work for God, went on. God kept blessing me and had revived. And I came along about the time uh, the organization was set up in America to destroy evangelism. And my own church, the ecclesiastical leaders organized to get rid of evangelism. Sam Jones couldn't be controlled. Crowds came, irresistible. John B. Culpepper, 
Henry C. Morrison. When I was a boy, the greatest evangelists that ever walked across this continent were in the Southern Methodist Church. They were greatest evangelistic geniuses this nation ever knew. Ever knew. I, I mean exactly what I say. It was a small group of men. Everyone original. Everyone a genius. And they organized to control those men to stop them. Some of them you couldn't stop. I came along in those days. Evangelism at that time was the in disrepute. The vocational evangelist was discredited. I'll never forget it. My good friends put their arms around me and said, uh, Bob, you don't want to be an evangelist. But I said, I think God wants me to be an evangelist. You can't afford to be an evangelist. You won't have standing anymore. I said, I think God wants me to be an evangelist. I'll never forget the man that made me alone to go to school. I borrowed money from him. Came to me and said, I wouldn't have let you have a cent to go to school if I'd known you are going to be an evangelist. I'm sorry I made you alone. I paid him back at 8% interest. He's a good man. He was just misguided. I never shall forget that night passing through a town in Louisiana. When I was a boy about 18 years old, or maybe 19, I got out of my bed at midnight and knelt by my bed and said, God, I know what you want me to be. I wasn't called by the Methodist Church. I wasn't called by the Baptist Church. I wasn't called by the Presbyterian Church. You called me. And I'm going to be an evangelist. Forty-eight years ago, that was. I fought many battles since that day. But I stand here this morning to say to you young people, and I'm saying this for some of you won't be here after this semester. For 48 years, God Almighty has put about me protection and defended me from ecclesiastical guns and ecclesiastical machinery and all the opposition that man can have. And I can testify that God never shuts the door in the face of a man that's going the way God wants him to go. If a man won't surrender. Now, God's called some of you folks. Definite, clear, explicit. And you know what he wants you to do. And if you'll be true to God Almighty, nothing can stop you. Everything on earth was done to stop Paul. I've said so many times they built jails on his road and and he saw those prisons and marched on to them. They did everything they could to kill him and one time they thought they'd succeeded and left him by the roadside and said he's dead now and that's the last of him. But he wasn't dead. And one day he took his pen and wrote Timothy and said, Timothy... I finished my job. I'm now ready to be offered at the time of my departures at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. The job's done. Listen, God won't let you die. And you wait a minute. He won't even let Jesus Christ come again. 
until your personal job is done. If your personal job is God's job and God's will and God's program for your life. Let's understand. Jeremiah, I'll build fences around you. I'll hedge you about. I'll protect you. Now you go do what I tell you to do. You're my prophet. Jeremiah goes down there to the city and notice he begins where God's man always begins. He begins with God. He didn't begin with machinery. He didn't begin with organization. He started with God. That's the starting place. In the beginning, God, and in the beginning of the accomplishment of the purposes of God in human life is God. He began with God. He didn't slip up on the blind side of them. He told them about how good God had been. The God that took care of them. The God that protected their ancestors. The God that delivered them from slavery. The God who had led them. He told them about God. And then he reminded them that they'd gone back on God. You walked out on him. God. He's the one you sinned against. Every sin that any man ever commits is a sin against God, always against God. The sin of nations is not just a sin against the people that live in the nations. It's a sin against a God on the throne. God. God. Every sin you ever committed was a blow at God. Every lie you ever told, every wicked thought you ever had, Every am selfish ambition that ever controlled you was simply meant that you walked up and spat in the face of deity. Man's a rebel against God. And you remind him of it. And the old prophet said, I don't see how you could do it. I don't see how you could treat God like that. A good God. You know, as I read this again this morning, I thought of America. America. Our America. Has walked out on God. We have no Sabbath. Church is empty. Family altars down. America. There's only one trouble in America. We walked out on God. This nation would have been invincible, unconquerable. It could be fenced about with God's omnipotence. But we walked out on God. We sing faith of our fathers with lips that don't mean what we sing, and with hearts in rebellion against God. He said, I don't see how you could do it. 
A virgin doesn't forget her ornaments. A maid doesn't forget her attire. But you've forgotten me days without number. How could you do it? How could you do it? How could you do it? I read some time ago about a home, a happy home. A husband, hard worker. Wife, three babies. One of them six months old. Everybody said it was a happy home. But one day, that man tired from the burdens of his work came home and found a little crying six-month-old baby in the cradle and the other little children sitting around crying for mama. And he said, where did she go? And the oldest one could talk and said she went off with a man and told us she wouldn't see us anymore. And that woman walked out on husband and three children and one of them a baby six months old walked out on them for sin. Terrible, isn't it? We've done worse than that. The worst sin she committed wasn't walking out on her husband and her babies. She walked out on Almighty God. That's the sin of sins. Now he says here, you've committed two evils. You've done two things. You've forsaken me. You've gone back on me, on God. You've forsaken God. He's the fountain of living waters. <laughs> and you did something else. You went out and healed your sister. You went away from a fountain where the water was flowing freely. Refreshing water. And went out over here and made you a sister. You did two things. You walked away from me and started to live your own life. And you made a mess. The cistern won't hold water. No system that man's ever built satisfies him. Nothing that man ever does outside the will of God ever brings happiness and peace and contentment. I've known men called to preach that made money and died wretched deaths after living wretched lives. I've known girls called to be missionaries who were restrained by selfish longings, thought they'd be happy. You can't be happy outside of the will of Almighty God for your life. And every cistern you dig, and sometime you think you'll quench your thirst, and there'll be no water there. The man in the fires of hell that cried with a parched tongue for a drop of water... 
is always typical of men who live without God. They always cry for water, for that which satisfies, and are never satisfied. You've forsaken me. You've committed two evils. Now, he said, I'll tell you why you did it. He said, you tried to trim your ways to please people. That's where you did it. Why trimmest thou thy ways to seek favor? Listen. Oh, how guilty some of us are. I want to please my organization. I want to please the ecclesiastical machine of my church. I want to please this crowd and that crowd. I want to please this. You have only one job, and that's to please Almighty God. Israel tried to please the nations around them, trimmed their ways, and didn't please anybody. God wasn't satisfied with them. The spiritual people in that group were never satisfied. And the nations around them were never satisfied. Some philosopher said the other day, Ms. Jones read me about a book, can't recall his name, who said, somebody asked him about how to please people, he'll tell you, he said, I'll tell you how not to please them. Try to please everybody and you'll please nobody. A man on the fence, both crowds shoot at him. I've never been shot at but one crowd, and I climb over on one side of the fence, and I'd hate to be shot at with both crowds, wouldn't you? Israel, nations around them, we're going to fix it up so everybody like us. <laughs> Somebody said to me, why don't you fix Bob Jones University so everybody will be for it? God wouldn't be for it. A church that folks are for, God isn't for. A church that worldly people in town are for, God isn't for it. A church with cocktail-drinking women, selfish, sinful men, calling it my church. My church. Hurrah for my church! If the world's for your church, God isn't for it. Never is. Young people, if you on this Sunday would make up your mind that as long as you live, there's only one person in this universe that you've got to be sure that you please, and that's Almighty God, you'll solve your problems. I don't want to talk about myself, but I want to give a testimony. I never get my business jammed. You never saw my business all jammed up. I learned I was a young man to just decide what's right and do it. Oh, yes, I've blundered and stumbled, but in an official role, when the issues come, I learned long ago the happiest, sweetest way on this earth 
is to have certain definite fundamental convictions and principles. And when you face the issue, stand on those principles. And the folks that on God's side and are spiritual will be for you. You don't have to sell those principles to saints. They are already sold. I'd like for you to get that today. Three classes of people in this country in the field of religion. One we call modernists. One's fundamentalists. Then there's another crowd between the two. Let's take the conservative first, the orthodox man. I respect a man that's orthodox, believes the Bible, preaches the gospel, and won't support anything that isn't saying. I salute him. That's my man. The next man I respect is a modernist. I don't agree with him. But if he's an out-and-out modernist, tells you he is, not subtle, not secret, open above board, I respect him next to the conservative. The man for whom I have righteous contempt is a man that's on both sides of the fence. You've got preachers in America that'll run with the modernists and they'll run with the conservatives, and they are contemptible men. The conservatives have a contempt for them, and the modernists have a contempt for them. And God Almighty is never pleased with them. There's no middle-of-the-road position for God-called men and women. Now, he said, you've trimmed your way and all the consequences. There never has been such indictment by a prophet of God as this. He said, you've taught wicked women how to ply their trade. That's an American version. You've taught the streetwalker how to carry on her business. Listen, whenever you get pulpiteers who are tremors, evangelists who are tremors, workers who are tremors, religious schools that trim, always you produce by that type trimming immorality and licentiousness and sin of all kinds. He said, you've taught wicked women how to carry on their business. You trim for favor. You pull down standards to please. And wicked women have watched you and they've done the same thing. Oh, what an endowment. I never noticed that this, till this morning just as it read. And my blood froze in my veins. I thought of America. A wave of immorality. Moral looseness. The lowest standard we've ever had. Hollywood actors and actresses, our heroes and heroines. The more divorces, the better they stand. Women that leave their little girls in California and live in open sin with men in Europe. Women that take little babies before they are divorced and their husbands and take their babies and travel over Europe with somebody. 
What an age. Immorality. Listen. You can trace it back in America to the lowering of standards in pulpits and churches. They've taught the tricks of their trimming to a world that's going to hell. You've taught the women who are wicked how to operate their business. He said, you've done something else. I find blood on the skirts of the innocents. And the blood on those skirts will be blood on the hands of those tremblers at the judgment bar of God. I wonder if there's any blood on your hands. I wonder if you ever shoved anybody down the road to hell just a little by cutting a corner or trimming. Young people, before we close, there are three ways to trim. One is by silence when you ought to speak up. What this nation needs, listen, are folks that will speak up. When moral issues at stake, folks are ridiculing decency. Christian standards are being pulled down. The Bible's being attacked. You need in this country a holy boldness to speak out. And God give you the courage to do it. And if you don't speak when you ought to speak, you're a tremor. Another way to trim is to speak on the wrong side of an issue. Great temptations to preachers. I remember one time I made a tour of Alabama and made prohibition speeches over the state. I'm a prohibitionist. I'm against the liquor business. But in every prohibition speech I ever made, I said, now, many women, let's understand this thing. Voting the prohibition ticket won't save your soul. And I told them every speech I made how they had to, what they had to do to be saved. You ought to make it your business to get the gospel message in on all occasions. And you can get in anywhere you go. Another way to trim is by the way you live. If a collection's being taken for some cause against the gospel and you put in just because you want to please the folks, you sin against God. You can support things in this country that have humanitarian spirit, but if you put money in any program against the gospel, and that's what they're doing in hundreds of churches in America today, you're trimming. And you're doing it to please. And God will hold you accountable. Can a maid forget her ornament, her bride, her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek favor? You've done it two ways. You've gone out on me and 
They found no water and hewn you out cisterns, broken cisterns and hold no water. Why did you do it? Look around you and see the consequences. Girls with flowers of modesty withered in their cheeks. Women learning all that tricks of sin from compromisers. You went back on God. Why not go back on my husband or my wife or my parents? You sold God out and double-crossed God to please a world against God? Why should I try to please anybody but myself? They claim to be religious, and here I am. Young people, some of you will be leaving this week. I want you on your knees before God as long as you live to ask God to help Bob Jones University keep up its standards. We've never dipped this flag. We've never lowered the standards. We've had to bear our breasts to the bullets over and over and over. I want this school till Jesus comes again to be a base a base of testimony with a flag lifted high. I want everybody to know where we stand. And when Jesus comes again, I don't want him to judge any of us executives and say, you trimmed your way to please, to please somebody else besides me. And all the consequences. May God help us to be faithful. Blessed Jesus, this morning we again dedicate ourselves to Thee and pray for the leadership and guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. Keep us faithful and true, we pray in Thy name. May we never waver here. We ask for the sake of Jesus. Amen.